recording. Okay. So, uh, so first, I, I was last time I heard you were in Northern California. So I was just wondering. So, what are you doing in Montana? I uh, actually have been here almost ten years. Well, actually, ten years now, and uh, I have a small private practice, and I've been consulting in communities all over the country, Canada, and other places. And uh, yeah, I just. Uh, I got tired of working for agencies and, uh, and got tired of what I call the bureaucratic domestic violence. And, oh, uh, yes. And so uh, I said, I can't do this anymore. And, uh, and so it's, it's been a lot better since I'm on my own, my own boss and, uh, and like that. So, uh, yeah. And yeah, I can certainly it, relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the focus the focus of, of what I wanted to talk about is kind of getting into the, the nuts and bolts of how we work with um, indigenous clients of like, what is, what works? And, and um, you know, I, we, we loved your book, Healing the Soul Wound. And um, I just wanted to, to, get your current thoughts on what works. We're, we're definitely interested in, well, we're interested in all people. I mean, people yeah. with all kinds of conditions, but especially we're interested in working with people with opiate use disorder because that's so common here in Maine. And, and, and it's what um, I'm consulting about and it's what Barbara is doing, my wife, Barbara. Um, so that that's kind of the the um, the gist of what we wanted to talk to you about, and um, and I, I'm just really happy for you to talk about anything you want to talk about. Having said that, because <laughs> it's great to reconnect with you after so many years. I know I hadn't, I hadn't seen you. I get your emails and I see your conferences, and uh, it says Coyote guys are already still doing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm doing the sold one. I don't know if that was the first edition because the second edition came up uh, in the last few months. And so I, I added to it. And so, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, I thought I was done writing about all this stuff and I really didn't want to do anymore. But uh, when a random call came that they wanted to do a second edition, I, I had a chapter on veterans that I had been uh, dealing with. And so uh, we added that and a few other things. And so we have the second edition of uh, Healing the Soul Wound. Oh, that's and, great. I'll have to get the second edition. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit off the grid. I mean, not like the, fir the first one was off the grid. This one's a little bit more. And so, uh, you know, just uh, caution your, uh, your readers that uh, it might be a, a bit more than, uh, than what people bargained for. But I thought... It's my swan song and getting too old to uh, pretend. So I just put it out and see what happens. And so, but uh, yeah, and your specifics here on the opiate. Uh, oh, and I see Barbara Melangai. Is that how you say your name? Mangai. Yeah. Oh, Mangai. Okay. And so uh, you're really small in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. And actually, you know, I, I, I speak specific to that, not in depth, but, you know, we're all dealing with the opiate uh, uh, abuse situation, uh, you know, here in, uh, in this part of the world, also meth, methamphetamine, and of course the, the usual alcohol and, and, and some of the others. And my understanding, uh, uh, you know, it's all, it's all, it all goes back to my root teacher, the teachings he gave me on on the so-called addiction, and, and I, I say it that way because addiction is just the surface of something a lot deeper, and uh, and and that much deeper, of course, the title of the book says it, it is is the soul wound, and also known as historical trauma, and so uh, a lot of these, you know, the addictions of sit on top of that, and uh, and if we don't go underneath then we, we have what we have now. And when I heard the numbers on opiate deaths, uh, I thought it was a yearly number. 
And then I thought it was a monthly number, and then I found out it was almost like it was like a daily number of deaths, which was really, really high. And so, uh, you know, that got me to thinking back to Root Teacher and, and his teachings, and uh, and my understanding again of uh, of any diagnosis, and, and I need to to say something about uh, diagnosing. Because in, in the Western co construct, I mean, as you know, uh, because of the English language, when we diagnose anything, we're naming it and uh, we're nouning it. And once we noun it, we objectify it. And once we objectify it, then it separates us from it. And so it's that separation that causes the distance and, and the problem and in, in, in addressing it. And uh, in a lot, in most indigenous languages, and I've talked to a lot of people who speak their language uh, as to how their language works. And so far, I mean, this is from people from all over the world have told me that what carries the meaning in their language is a more of a verbing understanding. So uh, reality is a movement and it's not static. So uh, it's, it's, it's difficult and at times impossible to objectify, therefore it's impossible to separate. And, and, and we don't separate, then it gives a whole different reality to, uh, you know, to the human's perception of the, the experience that the human being is having. And so therefore, when uh, if somebody presents and they say they have, uh, uh, they're addicted to heroin or uh, one of the prescribed uh, medicines, you know, opiates, uh, <clears throat> I stay away from telling them that, that that's who they are because when, you know, I don't want to name them. And, and when we talk to native people, uh, as you know, uh, traditionally there's well, what I call naming ceremonies. And, and this is where the person in power, the, the healer, the shaman, the doctor, whatever the person presents as, they're a person of power. So when they say you are addicted to opiates, then that's basically a naming ceremony and and now the person in the very next in-breath breathes that in and they walk away with a whole screenplay that goes with being an opiate addict so my take on that is to uh instead of saying you are anything i always use language of probability which is um you know the quantum people are telling us that's really how the universe is wired because even uh, matter that we think is kind of solid it's probabilistic also and uh, and so instead of saying you are addicted to you're an addict i said maybe the spirit of uh, opiates is visiting you and and that's a very different uh, understanding because now it's in movement if it's visiting i mean it's a movement and also it's alive and uh, all of these medicines you know which i they're all medicines whether it's opiates or marijuana or cocaine or methamphetamine they all come from the natural world and and they're sacred and so there is a relationship a way of relating to medicine <clears throat> that is prescribed in the original instructions and this is where you know most native people even uh, really colonized native people understand that there is a relationship with medicine. And so when I suggest to them that they might be abusing medicine, that's, that's a big deal to most Native people because they don't want to do that because medicine encompasses the whole reality, the whole cosmology, all of that. And, and, and now we're getting into spiritual turf and, and no one wants to be a bad shaman or, or practice bad medicine. And uh, I'll never forget, I was working in this inpatient program where <clears throat> all native, and uh, during the intakes, uh, once you know they would talk to other people, I would ask them, uh, well, why do you think you're doing this? You know, whatever it is that they were using and abusing. And, uh, and a lot of them would say, well, it's because uh, <clears throat> I'm being witched. And almost to the person, they would say that, even if they, if they were still detoxing or if they had been detoxed, they would say that and uh, the understanding is that there is some kind of an energy that was being projected to them and uh, and every time i would say well yeah you're right and i actually even know who's doing that and of course i would get them very interested 
and uh, and and I would I would say, well, every time you pick up whatever medicine you pick pick up, and you take it without authorization, you know, without a license, basically, uh, then I would ask him another question: What? Who are you if you're using medicine and you're not a medicine person? And everyone would answer correctly, and they would say, well, that means I'm a witch or I'm a sorcerer. I said, yeah, and that's who's sending the sorcery to you because you're doing it to yourself because you're violating all the rules of how medicine is supposed to be used in practice. And, and of course, all of them know how the healers usually uh, use medicine, and medicine, you know, has the practitioner has a relationship with it, either through a dream or a vision or whatnot. They, they are told which medicine will work with what patient. And so there's the offerings and, uh, and there's a whole protocol that goes with that. And so uh, when, when I explain to them that by them just jumping all the protocol, they're basically activating the dark side of the medicine, then the dark side of the medicine is going to take something. Because if you haven't given something consciously, it'll take something unconsciously. And, and this is where, uh, you know, the, the losses that happen to, to people around abusing medicine become very real. And if one were to listen to any AA meeting today, uh, the war stories, as they're called, um, most of those war stories involve loss. I lost my job, I lost my car, I lost my family, I lost. And so my, in my simple mind, I always uh, ask the simplest question. And I said, well, I wonder who took it because nothing is ever really lost. It just goes somewhere else. And this is where it opens it up again. Well, it's the spirit that medicine took from you <clears throat> because you abused it. And to tell a native person that, that's a, again, that's a big deal. You abuse medicine and you're practicing sorcery. And in uh, my first law of the universe, according to me, is that there's no free lunch. And so <clears throat> everything balances out in the universe. And if you take something and you don't get something back, then the universe or creator, however you believe, will take something from you. And that's where a lot of the losses come in in the, uh, in the process. So when I see that, Hundreds of people are dying every week from opiate abuse, use. Uh, it tells me that people are violating a very sacred medicine, which is, you know, also used, uh, you know, for, for helping with pain and a lot of other uses for opiates. And so then the medicine starts taking. And uh, as my DNA relatives uh, say, you know, usually takes a five-fingered one. And a five-fingered one is, is a human being, and that's the ultimate uh, cost for abusing medicine. And so that's kind of my, <clears throat> you know, my kind of take around, uh, kind of, I guess, theoretical take around all this. But the patients, even the ones that haven't detoxed, when, when I talk about it, they all understand that. And, I, and I'll never forget a lot of the patient, inpatient folks after I would tell them that, they would get a little bit upset. And, and the reason they were upset is because they would, t they would say to me, how come nobody ever told me about this? Because now that they understood it, they had a whole different relationship already, the relationship shape-shifting with whatever they were doing in their life. And so that was kind of my intro to it. And then, of course, there's... Uh, the therapies and all that that we can talk in a little bit. So I just want to make sure that that makes sense to you and, and Barbara. Oh, absolutely. Especially the part about it being a verb that we're always living out these lives, these stories. Um, and that, you know, I think what Western culture does is it takes these still photographs and says, okay, well, this is it, rather than it's a whole movie yeah. that's unfolding. Yeah. 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 And, and I know you wrote about hybrid. I was looking at uh, the book and you said that um, hybrid is a term 
that emerged from post-colonial thinking. It means that there can be two or more ways of knowing and that this can be a harmonious process. And we've been especially taken by uh, Albert Marshall's concept of two-eyed seeing, which is similar to your concept of hybrid. And, and really what we're trying to figure out is how do we live in both worlds? Because there's this world of the bureaucracy and the Western diagnoses and treatment plans and having to couch everything in cognitive behavior therapy terms. And there's this other world of spirits and spirit visitation and um, misusing the medicine, you know, not creating a safe space for the medicine to be. Um, and the fact that everything is simultaneously spiritual, physical, emotional, um, community, social, you know, how do we negotiate those two worlds? And if you could speak to some of that, that would be really helpful. Well, in, in bureaucracies, and, I, and I've been, I was in bureaucracies for, you know, uh, over two decades, you know, working uh, with tribal entities, urban, uh, actually even worked for IHS for four years, worked in hospitals for six years. And, uh, and, and uh, a lot of practitioners ask me that uh, a lot because they kind of know what needs to be done, but then they feel like they're, they're stuck in doing it in a way that doesn't seem to be very effective. And, and, and the way I did it and continue to do it is, is I, just, I just did it. And, uh, and even the, the working in, in IHS, you know, which has all the federal uh, rules and CFRs and all that, uh, instead of asking uh, permission, uh, I, I just did what needed to be done. And, and, and uh, we had a staff and, and we implemented uh, what we thought was, was, was appropriate. And what ended up happening is that the bureaucracy ended up taking the credit for it, which was fine, you know, let them let him take credit because, you know, it became more effective. We actually were able to bill at a higher rate to where we collected even more insurance money than was being collected before. And, and, and one of the ways if somebody really is having difficulty with the theory or shape-shifting the theory, this is, this is your gig, Lewis. I mean, this is coyote medicine. Mm, <laughs> you know, right. where, this is where you, you really have to walk that red razor's edge just like a coyote, you know, and they kind of walk sideways like that, right? And, and so if you're using smudging or using this kind of ceremonial stuff, and of course all of psychotherapy is a ceremony, uh, and you need to make a progress note that some bureaucrat's going to read and approve, you don't have to say that you can say you know we use uh, objects relations therapy combined with with cognitive measures because you do have to integrate consciously what's going on so that's a cognition and and the whole navajo way of understanding you know when you ask when i've asked old navajo people as to uh, what to do to get it you know to help myself you know they're they're main instruction is think good thoughts. Well, that's CBT, you know, 101 right up right there. And so, so within traditional methods, uh, there is language, but the, and this is where we really have to become really uh, well-versed in Western theory so that we can then extrapolate something from Western theory that we can use. And of course, Jung gave us a lot of that leeway but some places don't like you. And so then we have to go back and use uh, other jargon to explain what it is we're doing. And then after a while, and then uh, and that's why I write this stuff because if it's written, then slowly it can start becoming part of the paradigm to where, you know, why are you saying that? Well, according to so-and-so chapter, this and that, and so then it could become maybe a best practice. And uh, in an Indian country, uh, it should be a lot easier, especially if it's a, a program that is funded by the tribes in sovereignty. But again, because of colonization, 
sometimes even the tribes uh, have a lot of problems with uh, in indigenous ways of being because of the colonizing. And so it becomes a process of helping some of the leadership. And then, of course, when we get to the Western docs, well, that's a whole other thing because in my experience, especially working in IHS hospitals, uh, a lot of the docs just did not want it. And, uh, and, and, and they, you know, they would leave me alone, but they were still very leery. And, and they would say so openly that uh, they weren't too sure as to what was going on, even though they could see the effect in this, it, it would make them very uncomfortable. Because, you know, especially if you're a, an MD type of doc, then you, you're under even more uh, constraints, you know, because now you're just dealing kind of with body and uh, chemicals and, and medicines of those sorts. And, uh, and even with, with, you know, like the psychotropics and, uh, and, and any kind of medicine, uh, I always tell the docs or the pharmacists, before you give it to the patient, sacramentalize it. Because one of the big issues in Indian country is non-compliance. And, and it's been my experience that when docs or pharmacists actually pray for the medicine or offer it ceremoniously to the patient, it becomes different, it shapeshifts, and then the patients will actually take it. And it's the same medicine. I mean, it's still made by Pfizer or whoever, but when you pray on it and the patient knows you're doing that, and I had a young pharmacist from uh, the Gallup Indian Medical Center years ago after I talked about this, he came in, he was in uniform, he was commissioned corps, and he told me, he says, I'll never give medicine to native people the way I've been trained. I will always pray for it from now on. And so it didn't cost anything extra. He didn't have to write a grant. He could just do it, right? And 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 here he's doing it and he wasn't native and so here he's giving medicine to native people in, in a sacred way which makes it more effective so i think uh, <clears throat> there's a lot more room in there to uh, to to navigate this stuff and uh, and and i really think that we're really ready as a as a humanity to to start seeing things more spiritually and, and if we don't uh, we we're just not going to be here I mean, especially the last few weeks and all that's going on, it tells us, which of course, you know, the, the wounding goes deeper into the spirit. So it's going to create a, even a bigger hunger for opiates and those things that numb the spirit. Yeah. You know, that's a really good point that, and um, even with, with giving buprenorphine, that one can pray over it mm -hmm. or with it. Or in alignment with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, with all medicine. And sometimes, you know, even though, I mean, you're right, I've been on this coyote path of having a foot in each world. And sometimes I forget to pray over the medicine. And, and that's, that's, such, that's such a good point. And I think the other thing that I really enjoyed in your book was this idea um, that illness has a consciousness, that, that it's something to be addressed. And I wondered if you could say more about that. Yeah, and, and uh, regardless of what the, you know, the category of illness, whether it's in the physical body, the mind, uh, the spirit, uh, you know, and uh, I see people, not just native people, but I see people from all, uh, all cultures. And, and they resonate with us because uh, it it's, goes back to what I call, or some of the pe older people in, in the native world call the original instructions. I guess Jung would call it archetypes or pre-archetypes, where we're wired to, to understand things in a certain way. And then, of course, Jung said, our, our psyches are more primitive than, than, than we think. We think we're modern, but our psyches are still way, way back in the, in the original uh, way of, of, of perceiving consciousness. And, and all, all illness, you know, all substances have a consciousness to it. And, and this is where now the, the patient uh, can take proactive measures on, on their own behalf to where 
whether it's diabetes or opiate use or cancer or, or whatever, my, uh, what I try to get the patient to understand is that here's an entity, here's a visitor that's, that's visiting you. And in, in Western medicine, the idea is to get rid of it. And because Western philosophy, Western, you know, Western medicine derives from that, it's adversarial because of the subject-object relationship, there's no connection. And so then what we want to do is get rid of the sickness. And within a lot of traditional healing circles, that's unthinkable. What we do is we make a relative out of it and, and we try to understand what it's trying to tell us. And, and so like the spirit of diabetes, and uh, again, I was doing a talk in one of the communities uh, towards the middle of the country and uh, most of the doctor commission corps and, and the head doc was a four striper, so he was way up the food chain. And, uh, and it was a conference on diabetes. And I, I, I talked about how instead of saying you are a diabetic, <clears throat> to say perhaps the spirit of diabetes is visiting you, and then to establish a relationship with it and figure out where that spirit came from. And <clears throat> And at the end of my talk, uh, the head doc was going to give a talk, and, and to my surprise, he went up to him and said that he would never diagnose anybody as a diabetic, that he would always say, perhaps the spirit of diabetes is visiting you, and if it's visiting you, that means it's a movement, and then by doing certain protocols, traditional protocols, <clears throat> you can learn something from it, or you can shapeshift it, and perhaps even you know heal yourself, which would mean that you still have a relationship with it, even though it doesn't have to make your body sick. And so uh, that's kind of the uh, protocol that I try to give uh, the people I see, regardless of what they present with, that there is <clears throat> something, whatever it is that's bothering, knows it's bothering them. And, uh, and even like with the COVID-19, I saw something out of India uh, recently where you know, very poor community, and there's a group of women there giving offerings to the spirit of COVID. They're giving sweets and some other things to start that relationship with whatever this thing is because it's alive, and if it's alive, it has life. And if it has life, there's there's a knowing. It knows stuff. And uh, and, and it makes it a lot more interesting for the patient to... Uh, <clears throat> to realize that now I can actually go and relate to this on an ongoing basis rather than keep fighting it because, you know, Newton's first law, for every action there's an opposite and equal reaction. So if you push on whatever the diagnosis is, it's gonna push back. And so I tell people, we, we really know that for sure. So don't do that because it's gonna push back harder and, and instead relate to it. And, and there's a protocol that I've been taught by different traditional providers where let's say that the, the issue is the uh, opiate. And, and I never tell people to stop or to keep using because uh, in my experience, at least for me, that's never worked. To tell somebody to stop using opiates or stop using alcohol. That, that, for me, that doesn't work. Instead, I, I tell them to make a relative out of it. And it's the next time you're going to use whatever, let's say, whatever opiate you're going to use, before you take it, uh, identify yourself to it. You know, because if you're using that medicine, it's really rude for you to just take it without any, you know, any etiquette. And, and the way that uh, this works is you tell it your name, tell it your parents' name, grandparents, as far back as you can go. And then you ask it, well, what's your name? And who are your parents? Who are your grandparents? And, and what is it that you want? And then give it a gift. You know, most in native way, give it some tobacco. And now that completely shifts the relationship. And a lot of people over the years have really gotten upset at me because they said, you know, the thing you told me about talking to the spirit of the medicine, it's ruined my drinking because now I can't just drink in peace because I think about that stuff you said and, and I, I just can't do it the same way. 
So at the very least, it creates a little bit of a cognitive, uh, you know, monkey wrench in there to where now the person isn't drinking the same way. So already something shifted just by being conscious that there is a relationship. And then usually what happens is that the spirit of, of the substance will respond. Sometimes it responds verbally right there, sometimes in dreams. And so now the whole relationship is changed where it's becoming more medicine because now they're respecting it. They, they have a relationship, conscious one versus an unconscious one. And so that's, uh, again, with any uh, of the... Uh, Diagnoses and also, uh, I work with some patients who are going to have serious surgeries around taking parts of their body out of them. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I suggested to them to uh, offer whatever body part back to the mystery as their flesh offering, as their sacrifice, you know, for the well being of all other human beings don't waste it and so that's been one of my mantras is don't waste your suffering you know and, and and that's integral to a lot of native ceremony you know we're entering sundance season here in the plains and and that is the crux of that is that you're giving you know your flesh offering for the well-being of the earth and all human beings and then that is the very crux of christianity also to where it's a flesh offering that needed to happen, you know, the blood sacrifice. And it's been really interesting because uh, most of the surgeons that uh, have been involved in these surgeries have been really open to that. So, you know, I would tell the patient, talk to your nurse or whoever, and take some red cloth and take some cedar, because most of that stuff gets incinerated and have them put it in there and put the cedar on it before they burn it and it becomes your offering back to the creator and it's a very empowering thing for the patient because now instead of being a victim of whatever now they're offering medicine to to the rest of humanity and so uh you know that that becomes existentially then part of who they are and in my understanding that in offering indigenous traditional uh, interventions it does two things it gives an intervention that it also restores the identity because what we're doing then is we're validating that who you are as a native person is a really good thing it's a really powerful thing because that's been one of the things that colonization took and if you only insist on using western methods you continue to invalidate who they are as a human being and how can we expect them to get well well, we, we can't do that because in restoring identity, it's what the 23rd Psalm talks about. It restores our soul, you know, and, and that's what uh, that Psalm is about. It took me a long time for that insight to come up. I said, well, you know, whoever wrote that Psalm was a warrior king. He'd been in a lot of wars, so had lost pieces of his soul in battle. And so he's asking the creator to restore his soul. And with Native people to restore our soul, we need to do it by restoring aspects of who we are as Native people. And once we do that, then we won't have a need to do as to do opiates or to do whatever, because the opiate is also an act of restoring soul, except it's a negative unconscious act. And of course, it does the opposite. And so, uh, so that's kind of again my understanding. Uh, uh, theoretically about about that <clears throat> yeah and it, it relates to there's a quote you have at the beginning of chapter four in the first edition um, you say the medicine is already within the pain and suffering you just have to look deeply and quietly then you realize it has been there the whole time and i i really appreciated that because it's that idea that that within the pain and suffering is also the healing and i it 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 reminds me i have a friend in oregon rod and uh, he's a traditional provider now but he wasn't always that way and once upon a time i was with him at a sundance and 
a young man came up to him and, and said, Rod, I, I want to become a healer just like you. And he said, well, then you'll have to be a wino for 35 years. And, and I, I really appreciated that because it was that idea that, that he was honoring his suffering, that, it, the, that he was saying that he had reached into his suffering and brought himself out or brought out the healer within. Um, and that, um, you know, in no way was he negating where he had come from or the path that he had taken. And I, I wondered if you could say some more about about that, those concepts or the ideas from, um, you know, that the healing comes from within the pain and suffering. Yeah, I think that, you know, the archetype of the wounded healer, uh, you know, speaks to that. And, and, and again, you know, all of Christianity is based on that. You know, without that wounding of, of the Christ, uh, there is no medicine. You know, you, you have to really, really pay the sacrifice. And uh, the, my understanding of the wounded healer is that, you know, once we're wounded and, and we heal, if we can heal that wound, when we present in front of the patient, the patient's spirit detects the scars, you know, the, the wounding of the healer. And what that does, it activates the doctor in the patient. Because through that transference, and once the doctor is activated in the patient, then it starts to heal them also. And, and, but it's important that, you know, we heal ourselves as much as we can. Of course, it's always a work in progress, but it's those scars uh, you know that the healer carries that elicit uh, the, uh, the the medicine in the patient, and uh, and without that, it's it's just really really difficult to to elicit that. I mean, because it's not the wise words or the smart words or any of that, because a lot of people know a lot of really smart words and nothing happens, and a lot of people say no words and a lot happens, and so it's that mysterious. Uh, and then Jung said it when in his definition of the transference, he said, well, the transference really is when the sickness of the patient is transferred to the doctor. And, uh, and it says it several times. And when I talked to some of the Jungians years ago, they didn't believe that he said that. And I had to show it to them, uh, you know, chapter and verse, because, you know, a lot of times we're still stuck at transference. It's kind of the Freudian kind where, you know, we think it's a dad or mom or sister or whatever. And, but it goes a lot deeper than that. It has to do with a transfer of actual energy, the consciousness of whatever the problem is with the patient, then recognizes the medicine and the healing that the healer has done. And it shapeshifts itself. And it really helps the patient then to doctor themselves. And, and that's why most medicine people and a lot of Western providers, you know, they say, well, you know, uh, it's up to you. And, uh, and there's one uh, medicine man that I used to work with. Uh, he would do the ceremony and he would always tell the patient, he said, we took care of it. He said, it's, it's right here. And it's up to you if you want to pick it up again or not. And so basically he says, I did what I could, but if you pick it up, then you pick it up. And, and, that's up to you because a lot of times people want to pick up the sickness again because you know they're used to it or they or they there's lots of reasons for that and so uh, also the the quote there also goes back to something Rumi said in one of his uh, amazing works where he said everything has a crack in it and it's through the crack that the light comes in and so if the heart isn't broken uh, then you know, it's hard for the light to get in, you know, and if the heart is just closed and callous, then not a whole lot can happen. And so, so that's part of that whole, again, construct and how I, how I see things. Yeah, I was thinking about how when we label people, let's say we call them an alcoholic, that we put a, we, we put a whole story on them that it, it tells them, okay, so this is how you're going to live now. And, and um, so much of what we try to do is to, is to help people find another story 
you know, and, and, and I love the way that you talk about um, making friends with the illness and, and honoring it. You know, it makes me think of, of in, in Lakota ceremonies, there's often a place for ectomi, you know, that, that you honor ectomi and you feed ectomi, but you don't pay him a lot of attention. <laughs> you know he's there. Better to, better to make him a place and give him some food than to yeah. pretend that he's not there. Yeah, because then it can sneak up. And uh, and then, you know, my understanding, again, uh, <clears throat> Sundance on the third day, the teaching that was repeated over and over, on the third day, Tommy will be there. But he Tommy's there to reveal to you your true nature. And boy, what a gift that is, because good, bad, and the ugly, Tommy's going to show you a mirror. And, and now it's up to you to to do whatever you need to do with that. And, and then to further the, uh, the notion of consciousness, in, in my office I, I have, uh, somebody made me a fetish for the spirit of alcohol. It looks like a bottle of dark eyes. And in the back they attached out of pipestone a little coyote figure. <clears throat> and so uh, I actually have a physical representation of the spirit of addiction, whatever addiction it is. And almost, well, every patient that comes in there, they know what it's for. I said, well, why do you, do they think it's the real, they think it's just a bottle of, of whiskey. Uh, and I said, well, it's, it's, it's a stone. It's made out of stone. And, and they say, well, it's to leave offerings. So as we're talking, I was thinking in your area with, with the opiate thing, wouldn't it be something if somebody were to make a fetish of the spirit of opiates, of whichever opiate, to where now... It's, it's out here in the physical world in spirit form, and now pa patients could relate to the spirit of, of the opiate right there. It seems like a great idea. And then they could leave an offering right there presently, which is a transitional object for whoever needs to know that. But also, when we go to the spirit of opiates, uh, it's something that gets neglected and that most opiates, you know, are coming from like Afghanistan and places like that. Where, where the the energy around that has been violence because of the wars and the killing, and then in the processing and the selling, and then all of that that happens with the illicit substances. Uh, there's a lot of uh, death that happens. There's a lot of violence. So <clears throat> right into the medicine itself, the spirit of violence is deeply embedded in the spirit of the opiate and so I a lot of times ask people why do you want to take that because it's going to if you take in violence it's going to do violence to your body and so that so there's all these other energies that are involved in the spirit of opiates and if we have a physical representation of that there then the patient can actually talk to the fetish and uh, and that becomes a real somber existential moment for, for the patient hmm regardless of what they believe in. Because a few years ago, I had a person in the office who was abusing substances and they didn't believe in any, they didn't believe in AA, they didn't believe in higher power, and been through a lot of treatment programs. And so I, I just gave him some tobacco and what person was in native. And I said, why don't you just, and I called the spirit of alcohol, I call it my friend. I said, why don't you give my friend a gift? I said, just humor me. And so he put the tobacco over there. And as soon as he put the tobacco, he sat down and he, he had this expression. And he said, something happened. That's all, he, that, that's all he could say is that something happened. And so now he knew at his own spirit level, he had made contact with the spirit of that substance for the first time consciously. And so... <clears throat> Yeah, it'd be, uh, I'm sure you have artists, a lot of artists in that area, and uh, there might be a little bit of trepidation about making a fetish to the spirit of opiates, but because uh, it took me a while to get the one I have. Nobody wanted to make it, and I was working down in, uh, in, uh, <clears throat> in Zuni and Navajo country where there's a lot of uh, fetish makers, but when I asked for the spirit of alcohol, they all refused. 
and my last day at the hospital, uh, this one brother came in with a brown paper bag and he gives it to me and he says, here, and, and there's the fetish of the spirit of alcohol. And I don't know who made it, but somehow he got it made. And, and it's been with me for a long time. And it was interesting when I was working at the hospital and <clears throat> somebody was there and kind of intensive care because of alcohol or some other substance, you know, kind of on death's bed. I would always put that in my back pocket and go talk to the patient. And, uh, and, and it really looks like a bottle of dark eyes. And then I never forget because the nurses and the docs would just look at my pocket and not, no one would say anything. They thought I was I was drinking on the job, or, but nobody ever said anything about it. And so no one asked you. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. They would look at that and they would just look away. They, they didn't want to know. And then I didn't tell them because, you know, I was there to work with whatever needed to be worked at. And, but when they would see that bottle of dark eyes, they would think, oh man, this guy's using himself and here he is. But I guess that that's what they would think because they would just walk away. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. yeah, that was kind of the coyote uh, messing with them a little bit. And, you know, you got to have a little fun too, right? Right, right. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and I, th I think another important concept that you write about in the book is the idea that, well, both the necessity of making an offering and the importance of sacrifice, that, that in order to gain something, you have to give something. And, and that, that seems so important and so different from Western um, medicine, where, where you deliver yourself as the passive recipient of treatment. And, and you don't give anything, your insurance pays for it. And, and you don't really offer anything either, that you're just supposed to be fixed. And, and then um, everyone's surprised when you're not fixed, when it doesn't work. We, we have a friend who had cancer and went for traditional healing and, and the cancer disappeared. Uh, and, and the healers told her, they gave her a protocol to follow for the rest of her life. And they said, you have to follow this protocol or it'll come back. Because it's not that far away. Uh, it knows where you live. <laughs> so, so this is what you have to do. And don't forget to do it. Can you, I'm sure you have a little bit more you could say about that, those concepts. Yeah, and, and again, it's about the relationship with the actual entity. And, uh, and most Native people know this, except they've forgotten it. So, so when I say it, they're like, oh, yeah, my grandma talked that way. She said something like that, that, you know, all, all sickness has a spirit to it. And I say, but it's not just a metaphor. It's not just poetry. Uh, it's real in, 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 that, in that whatever entity has a consciousness to it and, and it wants to tell you something and this is where it's coming to visit and I you know and I'll tell the people if somebody comes to your door and you just tell them to go away well that's kind of rude right so here something's coming to your door and you just want to go away well that's kind of rude also regardless of what it is but it's cancer or diabetes or or some blessing because a lot of times it's a blessing and we don't even know it and and the only way to, and then I tell them, and the way to make relationship, I say, is the way we, you made relationship with me. You know, you called, you told me who you are. I asked you who your people are. And then we build on that so that our ancestors are also present there. And, and that's a real important aspect. And that's why in identifying themselves, I say to go back as far back as you can go. That way, your great-great-great-grandma can talk to my great-great-great-grandma. So this is the transference at a whole other level. And, and now by giving the gift, it, it, it locks in that relationship of the lineage. And so now it becomes a lot more interesting. And regardless of whether you're going to get relief in the physical body or not, now you, you know that it has a meaning for you. 
And very early on, that, that's what uh, really helped me get through some of the extreme suffering that, that I was working with in these communities. Uh, something that, uh, that Nietzsche said, where he said that there's nothing more wretched than meaningless suffering. So I think that by giving meaning to the suffering, it, it, it empowers us and, and, and we can take on the warrior attitude versus the victim uh, attitude that uh, a lot of times Western medicine puts us in. And, uh, and so that's kind of uh, my understanding. And, and again, this stuff works not just with native people. I mean, it works um, with, with all people because uh, a lot of the people that want to work with me, um, Either they've heard a little bit about me or whatever. Some of them don't really know. They just know that I do something different. And so, you know, they don't want to do the usual because it hasn't worked for them. And, of course, the meaning of insanity, which Western therapy should understand this notion, is to do the same thing over and over, expecting different results, right? And we, and we keep doing just the usual cognitive behavioral in and today, 22 veterans are going to commit suicide. Now there's going to be, I don't know how many hundreds of opiate deaths. And we keep doing the same thing over and over. And that's why in, in my writings, I incorporate stuff that is off the grid because it's different. And I'm not insane because I'm not doing the same thing over and over. And, and so it's kind of for my own sanity in a way. <laughs> One of the um, uh, things that I really like in your ideas is the warrior return ceremony. And I heard you speak on a podcast about um, trauma and you were referring to the, the need to bring people back and, and mentioning that at the Sundance, they'll do a warrior return ceremony. And I work with a lot of women who have experienced a lot of trauma and you know you it's you can see how it's rooted in in the kind of difficulties of transcending to communities of trying to incorporate things and i think of them as warriors and i wondered if you could say something about warrior women and and something that might be you know particular to women's experience that you've you've, you've seen well yeah actually uh, i forget i think it's chapter 6 in the <clears throat> in the edition you guys have where I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm dealing with a composite patient, you know, a, a woman. And, uh, and a lot of the women that, that I have worked with have, uh, have paid, you know, with their physical body, you know, just uh, through sacrifice, you know, through whatever traumas, it could be historical trauma, it could be personal trauma. And a lot of times uh, they, they have a lot of surgeries and uh, a lot, what I, the way I understand that, and so far, most of the women that I work with have really understood it at a deep, deep level, is that you've been sacrificing unconsciously. And, and it's through those surgeries that on the altar of Western surgery, you know, you gave your blood and, and, and flesh offering in, in that way. And so now you can go back in your intention and whatever was taken out of your body, even though it might have been a long time ago, you can go back and offer it back to the mystery as your sacrifice. And so that really empowers the person, the woman, to where now whatever was taken now becomes a medicine gift <clears throat> to heal the, the rest of humanity and the earth. And, uh, and that's been really, really powerful in, in that moment when they realize that I have been sacrificing unconsciously and to shapeshift that back into knowing. And of course the warrior does things knowing and, and they go, you know, with a knowing that this is going to happen and you're going to get this pretty much like in ceremony, you know, you know, it's going to be really hard, but you still go or in Christianity. I mean, Christ knew this was going to be really hard, but he, he said uh, they had their, their dinner and they, they sang a song. And he says, let's go do this now. I mean, that is, that is beyond warrior. I mean, and, and so a lot of the sisters, uh, that has been really, really a powerful 
experience to be able to go back and shapeshift their sacrifice into a conscious sacrifice that heals whoever, I mean, uh, whoever needs healing on the planet. And, and I tell them, it will work. You might never know who you healed with this, but it will heal somebody because the natural law says it has to work that way. Yeah. Um, before, before we finish, I just wondered if you could say a few words about um, the, the power of the community and how you bring community into your work with individual clients. Well, when I was working, uh, you know, deep in the community, I mean, uh, you know, I was there. And, uh, and of course, in a lot of communities, people really know uh, pretty much everything about everybody. And, and so it becomes, again, a, a notion of uh, decolonizing community as to the meaning of, uh, of wellness, of healing, how medicine works to where we can go back to the original instructions. And, and in doing so, that, that empowers the community then to, to heal themselves and to reintegrate uh, traditional ways of knowing into their systems. Because all communities have systems of health and law enforcement and all kinds of things like that. And so by restoring that or at least making aware the, the leadership aware that this needs to happen uh, it can start to restore the soul of the community itself and, and and that is really important like what you're talking about there with you know the tribes you're working with the urbans <clears throat> to be able to shapeshift the the actual work how medicine is is delivered you know in medicine meaning spiritual physical psychological all of it to those communities uh, would would uh, really restore the soul of the community itself to where you wouldn't have to worry about well how am I going to document this if I uh, if I do a smudging and a prayer and the person gets well uh, we should never have to worry about that I mean if we do then we can shape shift it on and, and talk about it in, in Westernese but if the community becomes empowered and sovereign, really sovereign spiritually, not just politically, then the community can only hire people that follow this way of working to where instead of colonizing medicine, it becomes a decolonizing medicine. And we can still use Western stuff. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in, in Western medicine. and But to where that can... You know, again, the hybrid, it can be there, but it doesn't have to be integrated. You know, it can be said, well, make an offering to the Western Prozac, and, uh, and now you've shapeshifted it, and now it has become sacred medicine. Because in a very Prozac, there's a lot of greed that goes into it, right? The pharmaceuticals, they just want to make a lot of money. So when you eat that, guess what? You're eating greed, and when you eat greed, it asks and wants more. And so this is in, the, in Buddhism, this is the hungry ghost realm where you have real tiny mouths and huge stomachs. So you can never be satisfied with, with that kind of medicine. And so in dealing with community and, and a lot of the work I, I do, I, I, I was traveling at least once a month to a community. I have it now because of the uh, being stuck at home. But that would be, you know, the message that I would try to 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 give and interesting you know most of the time people would come and say well we already know this stuff i said well then why am i here you know i say yeah i guess we just needed to be reminded we really know what you're talking about so community already knows but the layer of colonization has made it to where we can't we can't say it because, you know, we're afraid, you know, ashamed or, or whatever, you know, the boarding schools and all that put on us. And, we, and one of the things, last thing I really need, I'd like to remind communities is just like historical trauma got passed on down the generations, so did historical healing because our ancestors knew this was going to happen seven generations ago and they did ceremonies so that the medicine would also be coming in with the trauma. And so as we heal it now, 
were healing seven generations before and seven generations after. So the task becomes healing 14 generations, which, which is a big deal. And that's why it's so difficult because we're doing uh, 14 generations in that moment. And so when the patient realizes that that's what they're doing, it becomes existentially really powerful because even though they might not care about themselves, they care about their great, 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 great granddaughter. And when we say, oh, do you, I wonder if she's going to have to deal with this if you don't take care of it, because that's how this works. And usually they, they want to take care of her, if, even if they don't want to take care of themselves. So, so yeah, community, uh, it's a really important work. It's really uh, powerful. And these days, when I go to community, they already have uh, the consciousness and the jargon around historical trauma. Everybody talks about it. And it's just a matter of kind of nuts and bolts and figuring out how are we going to do the offerings community-wide and, uh, and slowly moving forward with that. Um, last, before we stop, I, I wondered if you could speak to what we've noticed here in Maine is a, a, a kind of resistance to community among the part of, of our patients who have had difficulties with opiates and and a kind of um, pretending that no one knows what they're doing when everybody knows what they're doing. And, and maybe Barbara could speak more to that um, more clearly than I am. I think there's... Uh, there's two things. There's there's the tribes um, in the area working to come down hard on opiate use and opiate transmission and, and bringing it into the land and, and trying hard to keep some kind of healthy practice. And then there's the shame that people feel, which I think is, is because they don't have a paradigm like you're talking about to understand what's happening to them. And the more I listen to the stories of the people that I'm working with and I understand their stories, the more I really see that they're, you know, you can see all the different forces that are kind of making them feel wedged and caught and, and, and how this happens. And just the conversation today is giving me some ideas. Um, and, and, uh, so there is a feeling of shame and detachment from community that they, that they can't go back and that they've, there's been hurt. There's been, you know, people have, have entered into relationships of trouble, you know, where they've taken things or something has happened like that. And, and so in our program, um, part of what we try to do when when the time is right is to is to bring people back into community so to begin to repair relationships and say well we'll you know we're happy to bring people together and see if we can bring and i love that um the healing is passed down through seven generations as well as the as the trauma and uh, i think that's a wonderful thing um a wonderful um, truth to say to people because i think that helps people feel that the thread of healing is there in their community and among their relatives and that when they're, you know, when they're, when they can enter in with this new understanding and come back into the family. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and, and working with families, community, uh, sometimes having the, the family do a genogram, right? To where they go back as far as they can go. And so they have the present genogram, but then I, I say, well, why don't you add to that three generations, just whoever has, and just theoretically see, and then you get to pick down here on this third generation from now, who's going to be the opiate addict, who's going to be suicidal. You get to pick that right now, and we can put an X, and then, but you can also say they're going to be well, depending on what you do. And, and that is really heavy duty stuff because. Now you are, and that's really the truth. That's how it works. And so, uh, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a powerful moment, even if somebody's under the influence uh, and, they, and they look at the, you know, the little box or the little circle of their great-granddaughter, and of course they're going to want to heal. And then also uh, a question that I like to ask leaders in community, especially if they're doing uh, 
shaming and of course there has to be police work and all that. I ask him, well, uh, especially around domestic violence, because um, it usually is a domestic violence program. I, I say, well, if this was 300 years ago, would you have that program? And every time they said no, and then I ask another silly question. I said, well, how come we have one now? And see, so now it becomes a matter of, gee, why do we have this program now? Or if it was 300 years ago, would you be excluding this family from the tribe? That would be un unthinkable unless, you know, they killed somebody or did some hyenas act. So why are we doing that now? It's because we've internalized, you know, the colonizer, and that's what they would do. And so could it be that the spirit of Sherman, the spirit of Custer, has integrated into the spirit of the, of, of the community here, and that's who's doing it, because they're still alive and well, even though their bodies are on the ground, their energy's still spinning around here, because it's about spirit. And so, so that's kind of one way of, uh, and I, I know that kind of, Get home with you there. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, we've. I'm gonna turn off the recording.